0: Amen amen you can go and have a seat and we are here to absolutely praise God. Amen. And uh, we are one of the things that we are to praise God for is an amazing uh, marriage conference this past two days. So we want to praise God for that. Amen. Let's give the Lord praise for that. And I want to also, we want to praise God and I want to thank you. Um, you guys, I I am so thankful to God for you. And on behalf of our elder team, it is just a joy to serve our Lord alongside each of you and to serve you as one of your elders and pastors. You guys serve so faithfully and I can't tell you you the number of, of comments that I received and others received about how loved people felt. Um, we had over 120 folks here from 10 different churches, five, uh, three different states, five of them, a great commission, collective churches, and to a person, uh, they just felt warmly welcomed and loved here, and that is a win. Praise God. Amen. The, Jesus says in John 13 that they will know that you are my disciples by how they, how you love one another, and I just want to say, church, well done. And so just thank you so much from the bottom of my heart for doing that. And we're just praying for the fruit of the gospel to continue to go forth. And God is moving in a big way. Well, speaking of those five Great Commission Collective churches, we are a part of one of the Great Commission Collective. Our church is actually one of the founding members of the Great Commission Collective. And what the GCC is, is a collection of churches. We're a family of families, if you would, of 246 churches locally, regionally, nationally, and internationally. Uh, Sent together by God on mission, knit together by the heart of God to plant churches and to strengthen churches for the glory of God. And God is moving and God is working. And so this past weekend, we have churches from, uh, we have folks here from Mission Lancaster, Mission Myers Oak Hill, Fairfax Bible Church. And so some of you uh, were on the men's retreat this past fall where we teamed up with Fairfax Bible Church in Oak Hill to have a great weekend together. And so this is just another expression of that. It's a privilege to be a part of the Great Commission Collective as God is moving and God is working. And today we have the privilege of having the president of the Great Commission Collective, uh, Dr. Dave Harvey here with us today. And so we just are so thankful to God for Dr. Harvey. And he has preached and spoken four times in the last uh, two days. And so this will be the fifth. And so uh, just get in your seats right now, just be praying for him, that God would use him in a big way. Um, but Dr. Harvey became the president of the GCC in August of 2019, so four and a half years ago. Um, and he has been in pastoral ministry for over 30 years. Um, He has done, God has used him in a variety of ways, in a variety of seasons. He has led multiple national church networks. He sits on the board for a Christian counseling uh, ministry. Um, He has been a senior pastor for almost 20 years. He has authored numerous books about a variety of things, from church networking to elder leadership to marriages to Am I Called to Be a Pad, which is a helpful resource to discovering your place in ministry if you're called to ministry. Um, And so while God has done all of those things, one of my greatest gifts that I have received from God is getting to know Dave personally over the last five years. Dave, God has used Dave in my life instrumentally, even up to 10 years ago through some of the books that he has written. Um, but uh, yes, Dave writes compellingly about the gospel and he speaks powerfully um, about the gospel, teaching and preaching, whether he's the same man, whether he is speaking in front of a thousands at a conference or around a, a, his dinner table or boardroom, having strategic conversations um, as you will hear him today. But even, even though he writes compellingly and he speaks powerfully about the gospel, he lives the gospel often and faithfully, and I just thank you for that, and it's a joy and a privilege and an honor to have you open God's word and bring us the gospel this morning. So would you welcome Dr. Dave Harvey with us this morning? Mm. <laughs> Amen. Well, let me pray for Dr. Harvey as he he opens God's word. Father, I just thank you so much for my friend Dave. Uh, And God, I just thank you for his giftedness that you have given him uh, to use for your glory. And I just pray in these moments that you would strengthen him right now. Uh, God, I pray that you would encourage his heart. I pray that Holy Spirit, that you would work powerfully in him and then through him and that you would open all of our hearts to receive whatever you have from yourself. Uh, God, as we grow in you, as we go for you, Jesus, we love you. In your mighty name we pray,
1: amen. amen. Thank you, Dan. Good morning. I was actually thrilled when Dan extended the invitation to come and be with you this weekend because I have long wanted to meet this church. I have long wanted to meet Harvest Bible Chapel of Annapolis. And that might might sound strange to you, but when I I explain, it won't surprise you because ever since I've met this guy, um, he has been a force of encouragement in my life. I think many of us can probably say that, but he has been a force of encouragement in my life, and and I've been the object of his his pursuit and his affection. And when I experience that from a pastor, it makes me think I want to meet the people he pastors. I want to meet the church where he he serves. And so I've been looking forward to being here to meet you. So so this weekend, uh, last night with the elders and their wives, and this morning, it's, uh, well, I'm just a very happy man. So thank you for receiving me so warmly. Um, Dan asked me to fill in some of the additional blanks in Great Commission Collective, what's going on. And so, yeah, he mentioned, this, this collective of churches that we're a part of, that exists, that basically partners churches together for two reasons, to plant churches and to strengthen leaders. So right now we're, we're planting eight different churches and then supporting 18 different church planters in locations all over North America. That's not internationally, there's a lot more going on internationally. One of the things that we've decided to do internationally is to, rather than just go in and plant churches, but it's to identify strategic leaders in different nations and form church planting networks, not where we have any authority, but where we can just come alongside of them and serve them and love them. So there's seven different networks that exist internationally in Romania and East Africa and Nepal and India and and the Caribbean, Middle East, you know, and it's just a thrill to be involved in that. So that's kind of what's going on, a little what's going on on the church planting side. Over here on the strengthening leader side, that that means uh, training, that means cohorts, that means coaching. That means we're working with elder pluralities to help them to be healthy. That means defining success for a local church, not simply by starting strong. We want churches to start strong. We want leaders to start strong, but we want leadership longevity. We want church resilience. We don't want to define success based upon what happens just in the next few years, but, it, but what's going on in 25 years? What's going on in 45 years? So God is meeting us, and I'm grateful to God because, you know, we're not a big group, and we don't regard ourselves as exceptionally talented, but we are trying to be faithful, and I'm just grateful to God that we get to do that in partnership with, with you. So, thank you. Well, I've been invited to preach out of Acts chapter 20, so you can open up your Bibles to Acts 20. We're going to read beginning in verse 17 through verse 25. And uh, while you're opening, let me just start with a little context. The date is somewhere around AD 57. The ship carrying Paul has docked in Miletus, which is a town about 30 miles southwest of Ephesus. And so because Paul is close enough to Ephesus to call out to some of his friends, he calls for the Ephesian elders to come and to join him. Now, Paul does this for two reasons. First, Paul is an intensely relational man. For Paul, it's never merely about just fulfilling a job description. It's never just about punching the clock. He he loves these men, and so he calls for them because he wants to be with them. But there's a second reason as well, and that is that Paul thinks he is going to die. And you will discover as we read this passage together that his tone appears grave, his subject most serious, because his heart is fixed upon Jerusalem. Beginning in verse 17, now... From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus, and he called the elders of the church to come to him. And when he came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold... I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Title of this morning's message is the audacious claim of the gospel. Let's, let's pray together. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we, we sit, we stand before you, we have opened up your word, and we are freshly reminded as we, as we read your word that we are entirely dependent upon you to understand what you are intending in passages like this. And, Lord, we are entirely dependent upon you to, to have the Spirit apply it to our lives. And so we, we open up our soul this morning and ask you to feed us, to guide us, and to direct us through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I used to find hiking to be an excellent way to explore life's deeper questions with my kids. And and such was the case a while back when my oldest son and I were hiking on a trail about five miles up through the Pennsylvania countryside to the top of a mountain where there was an outcropping of rocks. And so we hiked up to the top, we were sitting on this outcropping of rocks. And while we were there enjoying the view, a group of college students came past and we began to engage them. Hey, what are you doing here? And and they said they were there to explore a cave that was right down over the hill. And they asked us, they invited us, if we wanted to come along. And so we said we would. And so as life found me that day, I was following behind a group of people that I had never met to go to a place I had never gone to do something I had never done. And so we, we, we come to the mouth of the cave, and we kind of begin to crawl in, and we're crawling through it, and we come into this area where there's a, there's a great, like, a chamber, and there's a light coming down from the ceiling, and I look up, and there's a hole in the ceiling at the top of the cave. And almost as if this is the reason why they came into the cave, these college students, one by one, began climbing up the side of the cave wall. Now I'm standing there watching the whole thing. My son is standing next to me, and as each one goes up the side of the cave wall and through the hole in the top, I can feel him getting more excited, more desirous. And so as soon as the fourth college student goes through the hole, he turns and he says to me, "Dad." Oh, please let me go up the side of the cave wall through the I want to go up through the side of the cave wall. And and, and this is, it's awkward for me because I'm trying to explain to him, son, your mother sent you and I up to, to this morning, and uh, if I come back alone, it's going to be very awkward for Dave. <laughs> so uh, let's just not do this, okay? But then I, you know, I, I realized, okay, that's, I'm missing the point, you know, we're here to build a memory, and this is going to be a day together for the guys. And I said, okay, yeah, go ahead, go right up the side of the cave wall, and he scampers right up. Now, I, I should have anticipated what was going to happen next, because it was almost as if, like, the whole thing was choreographed. There were five arms that reached through the hole, and they're doing this. They're saying, come on up. Come on up the side of the cave wall, and I'm looking up and I'm saying and I'm shaking my head, no, no, I'm not coming up the side of the cave wall. It's been years since I've wanted to go up the side of a cave wall. There's something about having your second child. There's something about having a bad back. There's something about having a mortgage that makes you not want to go up the side of the cave wall. So I I declined. And I said, you know what, I'll just, I'll walk back, I'll crawl back out through the cave and I'll pick you up and we'll walk down. So I pick up my son and we're walking, we're walking back down the trail and the air is thick with disappointment. (laughs) And I realized, oh my goodness, I've, I've, just, I've just made a huge mistake. And so I stopped on the trail and I said, son, we're going back to the cave. I'm going up the side of the cave wall. And I knew it was the right decision because he said, yes, as if to say, my dad's not a wimp. <laughs> so 25 minutes later, you know, I'm, I'm climbing up the wall. And, and, and here's how it works. You know, the, the cave walls kind of come together. So at the top, there's a ledge that you have to put your one foot on and you put your hand on the wall and you push off the ledge where there's a ledge on the other side and you hit the wall with the other side and put your foot on the other ledge so that you can get through the hole. And so I push off and I hit the other wall with my hand and I put my, leg on the, I put my foot on the ledge, but I miss the ledge. And I start sliding down the side of the cave wall. And so my body just goes into lockdown. And I'm thinking to myself, well, yeah, I mean, here I am. I'm stuck. There's no going back. I can't stay where I am. The only place to go is to go forward, but to go forward comes at great risk. I can't give up. I can't say, oh, hang it, I'm just gonna fall. I can't just stay there, I can't stay still. Although, again, the mind does funny things in moments like that. You're thinking, hey, this is not so bad. I understand the temperature in caves is the same all year round. We can stay here, I can send Tyler home, he can get Kim, they can come up, they can bring groceries, they can decorate me for Christmas. You know, again, your mind is doing funny things because there's no going back. You can't stay where you are. You know you need to go forward, but to go forward, You must take a risk to go forward. There will be a cost. Do you get the sense that your life is unfolding with the same realization? That there's no going back. You can't stay where you are. The only place to go is to go forward. But going forward comes with great risk to go forward There will be a cost. Paul is in a similar position. Different reasons than I was, but a similar position. I was confronting risk because I didn't want to miss a moment. And by the way, I'll hold you in suspense no longer. I made it to the top and did not die. (laughs) But Paul confronted risk because he was a Christian. Paul confronted risks because of the gospel. Paul confronted risks because the spirit of God compelled him. Actually, let's just look at verse 22. He says, he says in verse 22, And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. I am going to Jerusalem, constrained by the spirit, not knowing. I am going, not knowing. You know, if there was one banner I could throw over the Christian life, if there was one statement I could say to every new believer to expect life to be, I would say, this is what it is. It's, I'm going, not knowing. Constrained by the Spirit, I'm going in a direction, not knowing what's going to happen. And so for Paul, there was no going back. He couldn't stay where he was, The only place to go was to go forward, and the only certainty he had in his life was the certainty of uncertainty. The only certainty he had was that there would be a risk. There would be a cost. And I guess what I'm trying to say, just to kind of open things up this morning, is that the gospel imposes a similar experience of risk and cost upon each of us. That the gospel makes the same kind of claim upon us as it does upon Paul. Now Paul was unique in many ways but what I'm trying to say is that the Christian life itself is this mysterious suspense where we are always and ever constrained by the spirit Going in a direction, not knowing what will happen. And the more we understand that, the more we come face to face with an undeniable fact, both for Paul and for us. And that is that for the Christian, the gospel makes an audacious claim. The gospel makes an audacious claim upon us. And I want to break that audacious claim down into three different Parts, three different kinds of claims that the gospel makes upon us, beginning with claim number one. Here it is. Go forth, uncertain. Go forth, uncertain. And we read verse 22, but that's where it it begins to emerge. I don't account my life, or or I'm sorry. He says in, in 22, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, going but not knowing What will happen? In other words, to be a Christian is to have have God create a compulsion within us, constrained by the Spirit, to set us in motion, I'm going to Jerusalem, and then to withhold what's going to happen as we follow him and depend upon him. I don't know what's going to happen. And, and believe me when I say this forms a common way that people experience God's direction. This is a common way that people encounter the living God. And, and it was certainly that way for Paul. I mean, this is not where it begins for Paul. The thread of that experience begins all the way back when Paul was first converted in Acts chapter 8. I mean, he gets, he gets whacked in that experience, that encounter with Jesus, and then, and then he's struck blind, and then he's told, he's told, rise, enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. In other words, I want you going in a direction, I want you obeying me, and I'll get back to you with the details. See, this is hard for us, because we're immediately thinking, no, 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 no Lord, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? And, and God's like, no, no, no you, you don't get it. I just told you, rise, enter the city, go. I'll get back to you with the specifics. But, but Lord, no, you don't understand me. I need the whole plan. I'm a type A personality. I like to be in control. I need to know. God says, no, you need to trust. And so we're not, I'm not going to fill in all the p- p- picture for you. I'm not going to color in all between all the lines. And it doesn't end there for Paul. I mean, Acts chapter 13, the Spirit of God speaks to the, the team in Antioch and says, set apart, for Bar- set apart Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. And they're like, Lord, this is maddening. What's the work you've called them to? We, we need information. Lord, we need clarity from you in, in order to move forward. God says, no, you don't need that. No, you need to obey me. See, this is a reorientation taking place. You're accustomed to being Lord of your life. You want clarity because you want to avoid trusting me. What I'm going to do is I'm going to require you to move forward without having the picture filled in. I'm going to invite you into a life where you are constrained by the spirit, going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen. Now, here's a question we have to wrestle with, both for Paul and for us. And that is, why would God do that to Paul? Why does God do that for us? And I think there's 10,000 reasons. And and, and I don't know them all. But I think at least one of them is that because our uncertainty... serves a vital role in God's plan. Our uncertainty becomes a daily reminder of our dependence upon God, a daily reminder that he is God, we are not. He is omniscient, we are not. He is omnipotent, we are not. No, I mean, just think about it. The mere existence of risk reminds us of how much greater God is than we are. Because God doesn't take risks, nor does he need to be a risk taker. God is neither going, because he's already there, nor is he ever not knowing, because he knows all things. See, the, the mere existence, the presence of risk reminds us each and every day of our humanity. Humanity that we are not divine, that we are limited, we are human, we are ignorant of the future. See, we we confront risk because we don't know the future. We confront risk because we can't control all the outcomes. We don't know ultimately what's going to happen. And, and, And we want to be able to control, we so, reach for control. We so want to be able to control our environment. I mean, you know, I, I think I told you over the weekend, if you were here, I w- we, we raised all of our kids in the Philadelphia area. So we, I lived in Pennsylvania for 50 years, uh, where even the threat of a snowstorm, not, not an actual snowstorm, but the threat of a, the forecast of a snowstorm would send people into a frenzy, a 24-hour news cycle reporting on all the snow that could potentially come, and then people rushing to the supermarket, almost like machines walking down the aisle, uh, up and down the aisle saying, milk and bread, milk and bread, milk and bread, milk and bread. You know, because for some reason, if there's a potential snowstorm, it makes us hungry for a sandwich and a glass of milk. I don't get it. I don't understand what's going on there. <laughs> But I know this, we crave a risk-free existence, But what we don't understand is that risk serves a central purpose in the life of the believer. Actually, it continues to serve us long beyond conversion, but it starts with conversion because what risk does is risk reasserts a reality that is initially uncovered in the gospel, and that is that we're not omniscient, we're not independent, we're not strong. We are weak. We are dependent. We are limited. We must trust Jesus, not only to save us, but we must continue to trust him along the way in the journey. And so here's the thing. God is brilliant. And so God delights putting us, he delights putting our church in the position of going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen. Because what it does is it reshapes our soul around trusting God. It orients us to walk by faith and not by sight. And so God knows that and he uses that and he's always done that. I mean, all the way back in the beginning of the Book of Genesis, think about, think about Abram. One of the first things God says to Abram is, Abram, can I get your attention? Okay. Get a pen and a piece of paper because here's the plan. Leave your country, your people and your father's household and go. Or where do you want me to go, Lord? To the land I'll show you. Wait a minute. No, no. Show me the land. No, I'll show you the land. I want you going. Go to the land. I'll show you the land. See, we're like, no, no, Lord, you show me the land. See, we need, a, a, we need to negotiate this, Lord. I don't think you really understand the risks that are involved, Lord. And so you show me the land, and then I'll decide whether I want to go. Because I may not like the land. The land may be toxic, or there may be giants in the land. Or there may be those people in the land, Lord. And you know how I feel about those people. And God says, no, 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 you don't understand. I want you constrained by the spirit going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen. And I know we hear this and we say, Dave, that's crazy. It's absurd. It's irrational. It's audacious. And I'm saying, that's my point. The gospel makes an audacious claim because it says to us, go forth uncertain. Claim number two, prepare for difficulty. Yeah, prepare for difficulty. So verse 23 kind of adds an additional twist to the audacious claim. Listen to, again, 22, now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there. Verse 23, except that the Lord testifies to me that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. See, Paul wasn't completely ignorant about the future. He knew this one little detail, which is that prison and afflictions awaited him. I mean, does your your mind work like mine? I'm thinking, you know, if, if I'm Paul... I'm appealing to the Lord. Lord, can we do this one of two ways? Can you either leave me in complete ignorance or give me the whole picture? But if you're going to pull the veil back on one little piece of data, does it really need to be that prison and afflictions await me? See, Paul knew there was danger. He knew there was injury up ahead. He has a sense for the ending he just didn't know how the ending was was going to happen. you know it's kind of like on the uh on the on the Star Trek episodes um, you know a- anyone here ever watched okay, this is a safe space has anybody here ever watched any any kind of star trek episode Captain kirk Picard you know who were the different, Archer, Cisco? you know, it it, it didn't matter. All of them shared this one common feature, and they, they all had a transporter room. And in every episode, they would go down to the transporter room, And in every episode, there would be these main crew members that existed throughout each and every episode. And at least three or four of them would go down to the transporter room. And then walking into the transporter room is this one other person, this one guy who no one's ever seen. And he's going down to the surface with them. And you know that he exists for one purpose. And that is he is like alien bait. You know, like, like he's going back and he's, he's going down and he's not coming back. He's gonna get chewed up or shot up or something down there. And, and you know, cause you've watched more than one episode that these guys always come back through the main crew. And so if you're like walking in and you see them all there, you're thinking, why do you go down to the surface? You know why you exist in this episode. You have a sense for the ending. You just don't know how it's gonna happen. Here's what Paul knew. I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen, except I do know one thing. There will be a cost. It will be difficult. It will be, here's a word, unsafe. That's a word that gets a lot of traction these days. And it's hard to be thinking about this when we feel like we're still, you know, in some ways dealing with at least the psychological fallout of a pandemic. And where the issue of safety has has been elevated to a need that exists right alongside of food and shelter. I mean, like, let's think about parenting for a second. The role of parents. is being completely re-engineered when it comes to this area of safety. From, From training kids to accept risk, which is what a good parent will train kids to accept risk, to helping kids to avoid risk at all costs. Because we don't want them to be merely physically safe. We want them to be emotionally safe. And, and, and some parents work overtime to protect their kids from any failure, any risk, any emotional discomfort whatsoever. And, and I'm not going to qualify all this. I think you know I'm not talking about put your kids at risk and, and make your kids emotionally dis- uncomfortable. You know. but, but what I'm saying is we serve this savior who, who has never held out for us this idea that there are these safe spaces that we're gonna, we're gonna be able to live in in a fallen world. In fact, Jesus kind of crawls right into our safe space and constantly just disrupts it. He, he, he blows it apart. He says, remember your enemies? We're like, yeah, I hate them. He says, no, go love your enemies. <laughs> you know that person you're offended with? Yeah, I'm, I, I, I don't ever wanna see them again go and be reconciled. Here's what I'm calling you to do, Mr. Safe Space. This is what he says. Here's what I'm calling you. to do. You know that person you're angry with? You know that person you're offended with? Respond to them in the way they have sinned in the way I responded to you when you sinned against me. You know that person in small group that drives you crazy because they talk so much? Yeah, go and love them. <laughs> go and love them. See, sometimes God violates our self-protection because he's committed to forming our soul. Amen. And the only way to form a soul is to violate our self-protection at times, to invite us in <laughs> to risk. And I don't know about you, but like, like for me, there, I feel this fundamental human drive for comfort. And it only gets stronger with the passing of each year. This desire to just remain hassle-free, to rule like God over my own life, to eliminate risk, to obliterate costs, to keep difficulties away. Because difficulties and discomfort, I mean, they're really synonymous, aren't they? If If it doesn't assault our comfort, then it's not really a difficulty, is it? I mean, what's the big deal if Paul is saying in verse 23, I only know that hotels and hot tubs await me. It doesn't land on us in the same way, does it? It doesn't doesn't have the same sense of risk. Because difficulties, by design, strip us down and violate our comforts and hurl us towards dependence upon God. And in doing so, it keeps us rooted in what really matters. And to be honest, this this theme resonates very deeply with me right now. So so when, when when I accepted this position as president of Great Commission Collective, I was not involved in a Great Commission Collective church and there were no Great Commission collective churches in our area. And that, so five years ago I began traveling and serving and traveling around Great Commission and serving. And the more that I did that, the more I longed to be a part of GCC, the more uh, GCC church, the more I longed to experience the community that I was observing in these churches. But, We could not move out of Florida because of custody issues related to our grandson, whom we are raising. And so the only conclusion I could draw from that is, well, I I guess God wants us to plant a GCC church in our area. And so about two years ago, Kim and I began praying, Lord, bring us a church planter. I don't think I can plant this church. I think I've got to Bring somebody else in, and I can serve them in planting the church, but bring a planter in whom God supplied about a year ago, and the planter and his wife and two children relocated about a year ago, and we start prayer meetings next month, and we hope to launch the church in September. And so now... I'm I'm looking at my schedule and I'm saying, Oh my goodness, Lord, are you serious? Now I got to cram a church plant into my life as well. I'm 63. I thought I was going to be exempt from this kind of thing in the 60s. I thought I was going to be exempt from risk and these kind of difficulties. And I almost feel the Spirit of God like turning that back on me and saying, Dave, I got news for you. You're going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit not knowing what will happen. In other words, the gospel makes an audacious claim. The gospel makes an audacious claim. Now I know we, we can hear stories like this and we can think, yes, oh yes, this inspires me. This, this passage inspires me. I'm, I'm ready to go, Dave. I'm ready to board a jet and go to Indonesia, not knowing what will happen and die if I need to. Yeah, but my question is, are, are you willing to like go to children's ministry and serve there not knowing what will happen, <laughs> you know? Or, are you willing to step up and use your gifts right here, right now, not knowing what will happen? Are you willing to walk across your street and invite your neighbor to church? Or let's, let's say over to dinner just to get to know them, not knowing what will happen. See, Paul is speaking within his role. The question we're wrestling with this morning together is, what is your Jerusalem? What does a spirit-constrained risk look like for you right now. And if you can identify with this, I want you to hear God's solution. It it is to accept that life is, is most often about going, not knowing. Because nothing attacks the idols of comfort quicker than being led into an uncomfortable risk. And God knows that. And so he uses that. And you know what? The reality is that some of you are there right now. You feel compelled by the spirit. You have sought the counsel of God. You, you, you've sought God in prayer. You sought counsel from other people. And now you just need to move forward. You just need to start taking a step and trusting God. Others of us need to be there right now. We're, we're, we're too comfortable I mean, last time we took a risk, we were listening to sermons on cassette. That's how long it's been. In other words, you're under challenged, lethally bored. Here's God's prescription for you. Listen to the spirit of God and get going in the direction that God is calling you to. Here's my question. What is your Jerusalem this morning? Maybe it means being reconciled, taking a step to be reconciled with someone, even though you don't know what's going to happen. Maybe it means having a conversation that you have been avoiding because you've lacked the courage to have that conversation. Maybe it means having a neighbor over for dinner. Maybe it means planting a church as well. The point that I'm driving at is God loves us so much. In fact, God loves us so much. God loves us too much to allow us to squander our lives in the gray twilight of ambivalence. And so he says, prepare for difficulty. And then there's the final claim, claim number three, which is value the gospel above all. Value the gospel above all. Verse 24, But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. It's a really interesting way for Paul to put things. It's almost like he, he slaps on this, this accountant's hat and he begins to ascribe value. He assigns value to different things. And really, here's where we see the true audacity of the claim, because Paul is basically saying, I value the gospel above my life. And, and when we read this, and we think, can he really be saying what it appears he's saying? I mean, that fulfilling the call of the gospel is more valuable than the life of Paul. I mean, I, Paul seems to be the only guy that has a justifiable exemption from this kind of sacrifice. But Paul's whole attitude, his approach is, is I'm not going to protect myself because I'm too valuable. I, I value the gospel above my life. Paul values the gospel. Here's another point. He values the gospel above his relationships. And this is not a guy that didn't value relationships. I mean, inherent to Paul's definition of success in ministry was relationships. You know, we read beginning in verse 17, he's he's close enough to the Ephesian elders. What does he do? He calls for them. Come and join me. You're my friends. I want to be together. He talks about how he lived with them, how he served them with tears. If we read all the way through verse 24 in chapter, chapter 20, 34 in chapter 20, we, we would see that they're, they're kneeling on the beach and praying together and weeping because they realize that they're not going to see each other again. I mean, talk about risk. So we didn't read this either, but like in 20, verses 29 and 30, Paul says, oh, oh yeah, by the way, um, after I leave, fierce wolves are going to come in among you and they're not going to spare the flock. And, and actually, I should probably mention as well that, that from your own, there's going to be men that are going to come up. They're going to rise up. They're going to be twisted things that they're teaching. They're going to draw people away from themselves. It's going to be ugly. It's going to be messy. Peace uh, Peace out. I, I'm, I'm heading in another direction. See, it, it seems so counterintuitive because we're like, Paul, where's your shepherding heart? Where, don't you want to passion the people? And, and, and Paul's like, no, I trust God and I'm not God. And so I value the gospel and I value God's ability to work in the lives of the people. And so Paul knew that leaving would be hard, that people would be at risk, but he left. Because he valued the gospel. See, see, we think when you move into leadership roles, we can begin to assume that the best way to honor God is to always protect the people from risk. So it's kind of like the parenting thing we talked about earlier, but it applies to leadership as well. We have to protect the people from risk. We have to protect the money. At all times. And and again, I'm not advocating that we be irresponsible in either area. But there's a quote. Dan Dan has heard this quote probably half a dozen times, but I'm going to read it to you this morning. heard it first from John Piper where he said this, quote, No local church can afford to go without the encouragement and nourishment that will come to it by sending away its best people. The encouragement and nourishment that will come to it by sending away its best people. See, all of the reasons that we think we can't be on mission, all of the reasons why we think we shouldn't be planting churches, all of the, all, you know, sometimes it's just smoke screens that, that avoid us, that insulate us from having to take risks. Well, we're too small, Lord. We're, you know, there, there's, there's no money. Uh, we, I don't know how we could sustain the blow of leaving people. But, but here's what God says. God says, don't disregard the encouragement and nourishment that comes to the church by sending away good people. Because we tend to think about church planting just only in the category of loss. But what what the reality in God's kingdom is that multiplication for a local church becomes a kind of mega vitamin that charges the church, that that nourishes the church, that sustains the church, that elevates the church. And sometimes it's the exact prescription that needs to be written for the church. I remember one time I was leading the church up in Philadelphia where I served for about 28 years. I was the lead pastor. We're going through this difficult season, there's, there's turbulence, there's disunity, we, I think we had lost maybe 10 or 15% of the people, and I remember thinking, you know, things are so bad right now, we better plant a church. Because we need the encouragement and nourishment that comes to us by sending away people. We need the encouragement and nourishment that will lift our eyes beyond the problems that we're experiencing and fix them on God and fix them on the field. And, 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 and allow grace to flow through that, which is exactly what happened. So Paul says, I value the gospel above my life. I value the gospel even above my relationships. And then finally, and this is where we wrap up. And I want you to think hard with me about this one. Paul valued the gospel above the fruit of the gospel. Now, I realize this is a strange one. Because we all long for fruit. We, you know, we, we, we parent, we do our best at parenting, we do our best in leadership and, and we give ourselves to relationships because we want to see fruit. But listen, Paul did not hold God hostage for a certain kind of fruit to be born in his timetable, in order for God to validate to Paul that he really did love Paul, or he really was for Paul, or he really did call Paul. Paul uses these words. He simply sought to be faithful to testify to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He simply sought to be faithful. He just wanted to be faithful. He trusted God with the fruit. He wanted to be faithful Paul recognized that some things are so worthy that mere obedience is enough. And we'll just trust God for when the fruit is going to come in. Some things are so worthy that it's glorious just to be a part of something and and to trust God with when the fruit is going to come back. And parenting is like that. Marriage is like that. Ministry is like that. Churches are like that. You know, I, I remember a number of years ago planting a church in South of Philadelphia, in, an, in just a, an under-resourced, impoverished area. And the church was planted by this heroic man and his family around him. And, uh, and it, was an, it was an urban church, and there were, there were a lot of risks being taken. And there was an entire strong team that was sent out with him. But as time passed... And as he was evaluating what was going on in the church and other people around him and then those that were serving him from the outside, he became more persuaded that the, church, the Lord was drawing the church to a close. After four or five years, drawing the church to a close. And that was really difficult because there were so many hopes that, that attended the planting of this church. There were so many sacrifices that were made. And on the final Sunday of that local church, they they had a banquet. They they had their final meeting. And then at the end of the meeting, they had a banquet. And they just took time at this banquet to review and testify and to celebrate the goodness of God. And as that banquet came to a close and the history of that one local church came to an end, there was one brother off in the corner and recognizing just the moment of what was going on. He just began up. He just stood up and he, be, he began to, to sing this song. Haven't you been good was the song. Thank you for the cross. Thank you, Lord, for drawing me out of millions lost. Thank you, Lord, for saving me. Haven't you been good? And his voice was echoing off the the banquet walls and and there was a kind of holy hush that began to settle upon the people. And one by one, all around the room, the children got up and they just began to dance while the guy was singing. And the Spirit of God stirred among these people because the people began to earnestly join their voices truly believing the substance of what they were singing, truly believing that though that they had started this, that God was still good, that God was expressing his goodness in this. And the lead pastor, who is no longer going to be a lead pastor, the lead pastor just sat there and he realized to himself, he thought, you know, some goals are so worthy. It's glorious to even make the attempt that the gospel is so worthy, it's glorious to even make the attempt. And so, Harvest Bible Church of Annapolis, you are called to reach this community. You are called to build this local church. You are called to plant churches. You are called to approach the next 10 years, not with the demand that everything you do will bear immediately, immediate fruit, but with the sense that it is glorious to even make the attempt. And I, I wish I could stand here and say to you that the day of cost and risk are over, but honestly... I have a sense that it's just beginning. And so, constrained by the Spirit, we are going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen. Let's pray. Lord, we we don't know, but we rest in the reality that you know And we trust you in what you know. And we trust that you will be working for good because you love us and you have called us according to your purposes. So Lord, you've been making associations all morning through this passage in the minds of of so many people here. I pray that you would give them, give us next steps that you're calling us to take. In response to this passage. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.